All right, take your Bibles tonight, please, and join me in Esther chapter 2. Esther chapter 2, that is our Wednesday night series. Very unique book in our Bible, and it reveals to us God's providence. What a comfort to know God is always at work. Though God may not always appear openly, we know God is there. Our God knows the end from the beginning. He is never caught off guard. And when people are out of the will of God, He is still working to fulfill His plans through His providence for His purposes and His glory. And this world is a mess, but God is not distressed. This world's going crazy, but God's not up there lazy. It gets better, hang on. This world seems to be set on the fire of hell, but God doeth all things well. The world is coming undone, but our God is not done. And as Pastor Williams would always say, all is well in my Father's house. God is not taken by surprise. God is not trying to call an audible. God is not making a move to the bullpen. God is not wondering if His game plan is going to work out. He knows all. He sees all. And He's moving pieces around on the world stage as He sees fit. And when you become convinced of this, coupled with the truth that God will take care of His own, You can have peace and rest in the midst of economic inflation, political unrest, wars and rumors of wars, pestilences, persecutions, talks of food shortages, on and on we could go. Why can we have peace through it all? Because our God is on the throne. In the book of Esther, we have the account of a people who are out of the will of God. The Jews were permitted to return to the land After the 70-year captivity in Babylon, after the Persians took over, Cyrus released them. Only around 60,000 returned. All the rest are choosing to live in exile in Persia. And though they are out of the will of God, we find God's providence takes over because God still had a promise to fulfill from the tribe of Judah. And God will protect this people from wicked Haman's plot who he wanted to destroy them. He keeps Judah intact because the lion of the tribe of Judah is still yet to come. God made a covenant with Abraham that a promised seed would arrive and God made a covenant with David that one would sit upon the throne. And both are fulfilled under the new covenant through Christ. And for this reason, our New Testament or our new covenant opens with these words, In Matthew 1, 1, the book of the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. We've covered way too much to recap. If you missed any of the messages, go back and listen. They're out there for your enjoyment. I do need to mention where we're at in chapter 2 before we pick up where we left off. Chapter 2, we've been considering how messy life gets when we live outside of God's will. Remember that the king, he's rounded up all these fair young virgins against their will for his own carnal desires. This was legalized human trafficking. Only one is going to be named queen. The rest will live out their days as concubines. 
This is not some fairy tale opportunity, okay? This is a very ugly thing that's taking place. It's very serious. We find Mordecai, he's hiding his identity. He's told Esther, you need to do the same. And when a child of Israel would conceal their identity, they are essentially concealing their connection to the living God. The same is true for the child of God who's living outside of God's will. You typically don't brag about your connection to Christ. In addition, Esther is about to be married to a pagan man. That was also against God's will. And it still goes against God's will for you to be married to a non-believer. While being in the will of God does not mean the absence of trials, you can have peace through the trials when you're in the will of God. Because you can know, I'm in God's will. This is what God has for me. And that's what helps you to get through it. And you can have a peace that passes all understanding. But Mordecai and Esther, and for all the Jews in exile for that matter, as we'll see as this unfolds, there is an absence of peace through this trial because they are now outside of God's will. They don't have the assurance that all is well in my Father's house. Instead, they're only left with the hope of, who knoweth whether thou art come into the kingdom for such a time as this? Now, we often look at that as such a great verse, and it is. But when you really break down that verse and what it is saying, you think about it, that statement reveals that there's a lack of peace. Who knows? When you're in the will of God, you know some things. Well, who knows if, if maybe this is it. So things here are a mess, but God's providence is going to overrule. Though their nationality is being concealed, God is going to use that fact to further His purposes later on. And though Esther is going to end up marrying a pagan man, God is going to use that to fulfill His purposes as well. Romans eleven thirty three and 34. Oh, the depths of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord or who hath been His counselor? Amen. With that, let's go to Esther chapter 2. Let's read verses 5 through whenever I decide to quit. Now in Shushan the palace, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Yair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity, which had been carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And he brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. The maid was fair and beautiful, whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took for his own daughter. So it came to pass, when the king's commandment and his decree was heard, and when many maidens were gathered together unto Shushan the palace, to the custody of Haggai, that Esther was brought also unto the king's house, to the custody of Haggai, keeper of the women. And the maiden pleased him, and she obtained kindness of him, and he speedily gave her thanks for her purification with such things as belonged to her and seven maidens which were meet to be given her out of the king's house. And he preferred her and her maids unto the best place of the house of the women. Esther had not showed her people nor her kindred, for Mordecai had charged her that she should not show it. Mordecai walked every day before the court of the women's house to know how Esther did and what should become of her. 
Now when every maid's turn was come to go into the king Ahasuerus, after that she had been twelve months according to the manner of the women, for so were the days of their purification accomplished to wit, six months with oil and myrrh, six months with sweet odors, and with other things for the purifying of the women. Then thus came every maiden unto the king, whatsoever she desired was given her to go with her out of the house of the women unto the king's house. In the evening she went, and on the morrow she returned into the second house of the women to the custody of Sheashgaz, the king's chamberlain, which kept the concubines. She came in unto the king no more, except the king delighted in her, and that she were called by name. Now in the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her for his daughter, was come to go in unto the king. She required nothing but what Haggai, the king's chamberlain, the keeper of the women, appointed. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all them that looked upon her. Let's stop reading there. Last week we covered verse 11. There are two ways that we can view that verse. Either Mordecai is a nervous wreck due to all the uncertainty that's taking place, or we see here a loving father. Maybe a combination of the two, but I focus primarily on the fact that I believe we see here a father's love for his adopted daughter. Because of Mordecai's position, we kind of talked about what that may have been, but whatever his position was within the palace, he's able to obtain information of Esther's well-being while she's in the court of the women. And if you know anything about the court of the women, the harem, this should not have been able to happen. It's a very secretive place. You're not supposed to get information. And yet, we find God showing him favor. God is already at work because he's able to obtain this information on how Esther is doing. And I'd like to believe that somehow Esther was aware that Mordecai was coming every day to see how she fared. And we talked about what a comfort that would be to somebody who is going through something very difficult just to know that there's somebody on the other side of the walls that cares enough to come and ask how they are doing. And though she may have been out of sight, she was not out of mind. And in that, we considered how you and I, we need to obey every impulse of the Holy Ghost leading that tells us, pick up the phone, write a letter, make a visit. Because when we obey the Holy Spirit, it may be the very thing that that person needs to keep them going through a very difficult and trying circumstance. This this act by Mordecai, we don't know, but it could be one of the things that kept Esther going because she has been forced into this situation. Mordecai becomes a picture of our loving, heavenly Father who cares for His adopted children. God wants to hear from us every day. Mordecai, I would come every day. God wants us to go to Him every day. God knows our welfare. He knows how we're doing. He doesn't have the problem that Mordecai has. But God still wants to hear from us. He wants to commune with us because He cares for us. But the question we ended with last week, are you allowing God in? Revelation 3.20 Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door... I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. So are you in daily fellowship with God? 
He died for you to make that a reality. Do you trust that nothing shall be able to separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? Well, that was last week. Let's move on to verses 12 through 14. Now when every maid's turn was come to go into King Ahasuerus, after that she had been twelve months according to the manner of the women, for so were the days of their purifications accomplished, to wit, six months with oil and myrrh, six months with sweet odors, and with other things for the purifying of the women. So we see here in verse 12, this is quite an ordeal. Amen? Twelve months. (laughs) Twelve months of purification. We think women take a long time to get ready today. Twelve months. That means women would come to church once a year. And pastoring would be a whole lot easier. Why such a long period of time? Twelve months. One simple viewpoint is this may have just been the Persian etiquette. For any woman to be worthy to go into the king, you know, in Persia, we talked about how when they pass a law, that's law, you can't change it. Maybe that was a law that was instituted some time before, and this is just the custom that they had to take this much time because this had become their, their etiquette. A, common, a more common sense opinion is this would allow enough time to know whether anybody was already pregnant, maybe wasn't a virgin. And therefore, the king didn't want to have somebody who he didn't know whether or not it was really his child. So let's give him 12 months. And, and so that, that could be a more common sense approach. We see this purification process was broken down into two six-month periods. Six months with oil and myrrh. That was used to treat and to soften their skin and an additional six months with sweet odors to make them smell good. I chuckled when I read Adam Clark's commentary on this. I want to read it to you. The most beautiful of all young virgins of all the provinces of Babylon were to be selected. And these were taken out of all classes of the people indiscriminately. Consequently, there must have been many who were brought up in low life. Now we know that those who feed on coarse, strong food, which is not easily digested, have generally a copious perspiration, which is strongly odorous. And in many, though in every respect amiable and even beautiful, this odor is far from being pleasant. Pure, wholesome, easily digested and nourishing food with the frequent use of hot bath, continued for 12 months, the body frequently rubbed with olive oil will in most Every case, remove all that is disagreeable of this kind. That's great, amen? We probably take it for granted in this day and age. But anyway, I can just, I can just picture these men back then talking about this kind of a thing, you know. Boy, I got to tell you, those lower class women, they eat some coarse food. And buddy, I got to tell you, they stink. I don't know. That's how I picture it. What happened? Okay, we know while the children of of Israel were in Egypt, they ate fish and garlic and onions. We know what that does to the breath. I just happen to like all three mixed together. So pray for Adrian. When we were stationed in South Korea, we found out firsthand what this is all about. They eat a lot of garlic, a lot of garlic kimchi. And in the summer, it's hot and muggy. And when you ride the public buses... There's no air conditioners. And the men are wearing their tank tops and they're hanging on to those 
rails. You get to smell all that sweat, and it smells like garlic. Well, we got to know some Koreans through our church, and this topic came up one day. What else would you talk to Koreans about, amen? So the Americans told the Koreans, you guys smell like garlic when you sweat. And the Koreans told the Americans, well, you smell like grease when you sweat. How about that, huh? I don't know if you are what you eat, but you, you will smell like what you eat. Amen. Anyway, this event in our text is taking place in Shushan, which would have been located in modern western Iran, north of the Persian Gulf. So I looked up, at being a weather guy by trade, I, I looked up a town near there to see what the average high is. And in July, the average high is 118 degrees. The average high. Ugh. So you can imagine what these chamberlains were up against with these women. And perhaps, in a humorous way, and maybe not quite so humorous, but perhaps when, in God's providence, Esther's time comes to go before the king, we'll see that it's in what is our mid-December through mid-January, when the average high is only in the mid-60s, much less stinky. I'm just saying, you never know, that might be God's providence here. Moving on. Verse 13. Then thus came every maiden unto the king. Whatsoever she desired was given her to go with her out of the house of the women unto the king's house. So after 12 months of purification and preparation, the day would would arrive when these maidens would be brought before the king to have one night with the king. And whatsoever she desired, she would be given to go and appear before the king. She could wear whatever she wanted to. She could adorn herself herself with whatever jewels. She could use whatever cosmetics, perfumes, all of this to try and impress this king on one night. And it would be like giving your wife an unlimited credit card to shop at the finest department stores and saying, here, go buy whatever you want. In verse 14, it says, in the evening she went and on the Morrow she returned in the second house of the women to the custody of Shayash Gaz, the king's chamberlain, which kept the concubines. She came in unto the king no more, except the king delighted in her, and that she were called by name. After their one night with the king, having their purity forced away from them, they would then be returned to the house of the women, but not the same place of their preparation. It would be to a separate area the second house of the women, and they would be transferred from the custody of Haggai to Sheash Agaz, and, and there they would live out the rest of their lives as concubines, and they would never see the king again unless he called for them by name. And if he did, it was only to fulfill his own lust. And I know I said this already and in a previous message but this would be a miserable existence. Many, if not all, were taken against their will. They would be forced to spend one night with this perverted king. There would be no marriage. There would be no family. There would be no freedom. They would never see their homeland again. And so they had all this stuff at their disposal. But when we come to verse 15, we find that when it's Esther's time to go unto the king, she doesn't take to herself all that is available unto her. 
Look at verse 15 again. Now in the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her for his daughter, was come to go in unto the king. She required nothing but what Haggai, the king's chamberlain, the keeper of the women, appointed. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all them that looked upon her. We see that she required nothing. You get a hold of that phrase tonight. She required nothing. She didn't need fabricated beauty. She didn't seek for all the outer adornings. Some suppose her unusual approach was because she could have cared less if the king was pleased since she was forced into this situation. I don't know if that's the case or not. But she is content to go in unto the king in just her natural beauty. It could be Esther was satisfied to go with what Haggai said because if you'll remember in verse number 9 that Haggai had already preferred her above all the other ladies and gave her the best place of the house of the women. She likely could perceive that Haggai had her best interest in mind, wanted her success, God having already moved in the heart of Haggai. Whatever the case, I believe this move by Esther reveals her modesty and her character. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. In like manner also the women, that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. 1 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4. Whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of the plating of the hair, of the wearing of gold, or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God a great price. Esther may have been beautiful naturally, outwardly, but it is my opinion she was even more beautiful inwardly in her character and in her humility. And that is the beauty that God is most interested in. And perhaps Esther doesn't want to get overly fancied up because she understood, get this now, <laughs> that when a king has everything, what are you going to give him? And, and maybe Esther, she, she puts this together, she understands this is the most powerful man in the world. He's got the largest empire. He's got the most wealth. And, and understanding that what am I supposed to give a king who has it all? Now think about this. These women had all of this stuff available to them, but who provided it to them? The king. So was the king really going to be impressed with what he already possessed? And so when a king has everything, how are you going to impress him? You do so by simply giving him yourself. This is good now. I would think a Wednesday night crowd knows exactly where we're going. But what you can give the king of kings who already owns it all is yourself. The Bible says that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He owns all the gold and silver and precious stones. He owns the universe. All creation is already His. Psalm 50 verses 10 and 11, For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. 
It all belongs to Him. There is nothing we can give Him to make Him more magnificent and more glorious. There is nothing we can give Him that is going to improve His status. There is nothing we can give Him to increase His wealth. This is part of the reason why God said, I was never pleased with the sacrifice of bulls and goats. Because all of those sacrifices, they were only types and figures of the Lord Jesus Christ, the sacrificial Lamb of God to come who would give His blood and His life to redeem mankind to God. That was who God was well pleased with. His Son. God could not receive a sacrifice good enough from us. So He gave us Himself. What a thought. You see, by God's design, you've been created with a free will. You can choose whether you will love Him or not. Whether you'll accept Him or reject Him. But God wants a relationship with you. And since He has it all and since He gave all, He's only going to be pleased with one gift that you can give Him, and that is yourself. Romans 12:1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. The only gift you can give, pleasing enough for the King of kings who owns everything is yourself. And I want to tell you tonight, all He wants is you. He wants your life. He wants your heart. But you have to lay yourself upon the altar of God and allow Him to burn away all those externals that you think are impressing Him. Just give Him yourself as a living sacrifice. And and I know you all here tonight, you know this to be true. This is why in the middle of the week when you're tired from work, you decided to get enough energy to get in your vehicle and come to church tonight because you understand that all God really wants is you. And, And understand, you can preach in His name. You can cast out demons in His name. You can do many wonderful works in His name. But if He doesn't know you personally, He's going to say, Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I never knew you. He wants you, not your works of righteousness, not your outward beauty, but He wants your heart. Psalm 95, verses 2 through 6, Let us... Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto Him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a King above all gods. In His hand are the deep places of the earth. The strength of the hills is His also. The sea is His and He made it. And His hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker Pay attention to what the psalmist is saying. He's saying this. He recognized this. God already had it all. So essentially, he's saying this. All we can do is let us give Him ourselves. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Oh, come let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord God our Maker. Let's give Him what no part of creation can give Him. Let us give Him our life. That's what the psalmist is saying. He owns it all. But let us come before Him. Someone may be wondering, what's the requirement? How how is it that I I can come before God and give Him my life? How is that possible? Notice the middle of verse 15 again. She required nothing. But, but, But get what it says. She required nothing but what Haggai, 
the king's chamberlain, the keeper of the women, appointed. You know what Esther did? She, she simply trusted Haggai. You catching this? In order to give God your life, you require nothing. But what God has already provided through Christ. You give yourself to God by coming to, through, to Him through faith in Christ. What's required? Only that you trust His provision. That's what Esther's doing. Hey, guy, whatever you say I need, that's what I'll do. She's simply trusting in Him and saying, whatever you, you think that's best, that's what I'll do. And so what's required? We trust what He's already provided. And you see, understand tonight, you don't need all the outer trappings that you think make you beautiful. You don't need that. You don't need all the outer trappings of religion, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but within are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. The only clothing you require to come before God's presence and to be pleasing in His sight is His robe of righteousness, which He provides <laughs> through the precious blood of Christ. What does it require to be a child of God? Nothing but yourself. Nothing but the naked grace of God. Nothing but the blood. Because God makes us accepted in the beloved. Notice the end of 15, uh, verse 15. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of them all that looked upon her. Make a note, if you will, to tie this back to the phrase, she required nothing. How does she obtain favor? By simply trusting the provision and wisdom of her keeper. How do you and I obtain favor from God? By simply trusting the provision and wisdom of our heavenly keeper. Amen. Have you given your life to God? By only trusting in Him and His provision. You're not going to impress the king with fabricated beauty. Get dunked all you want. Join all the churches you want. Give all you want. That's not going to gain you entrance into His presence. And you have nothing that you can give to Him that will impress Him other than yourself because He is altogether lovely. And when you go to God, He says... I really need you to just come to me the way I have created you. You don't need to have all this outward adorning. I created you beautiful the way you are. I make all things beautiful in my time. And you don't have to go running about thinking about how you can pretty up this thing that's dying. None of us still look like we walked off the football field. Well, Breck does. But that's football field. Amen. God says, you just come to me the way you are. Esther said, I'm not going to put on all that stuff. Hey, guy, whatever you say I need, that's what I'll do. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bids me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, thou wilt, thou wilt receive, wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve. Because thy promise I believe, 
Oh, Lamb of God, I come. He just wants you. He just wants you. If, if I could just get this area right in my life. Maybe my relationship with God would improve. God says, I just want you. Just come to me. Don't think you have to get so dolled up. I died for you. That I might cleanse you. Sanctify you. Justify you. Make you holy. You think you're going to do that on your own? No way. No way. And so God says, you just trust the provisions of your keeper. I'll take care of everything. And God says, do you trust me enough? Do you trust me enough? Am I really all you need? He wants you. He wants your love. Love Him with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Trust only in Him and in His provision. I hope you can see Christ in verse 15. Let's pray.